Chapter Twelve of the Ultimate Weapon by John W. Campbell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Buck Kendall, with a slow smile, looked out of the port in the thick metal wall. The magnetic shield of the lunar fort was washed constantly with the fires of exploding magnetic bombs. The smile spread broader. My friends, he said softly, you can pull from now to doomsday, as far as I'm concerned, and you won't even disturb us now. He looked back over his shoulder into the power room. A hunched bulk, beautifully designed and carefully finished, the apparatus that created uncertainty of the fourth degree, was destroying matter and creating by its destruction terrific electric fields. These fields were feeding the magnetic shields now. Under the present drain, the machine was not noticeably working. In fact, Kendall was a bit annoyed. He had tested out the energy-generating properties of this machine, trying to find a limit. He had found that there was no limit. The great copper conductors, charged with the same atoster force that was used in the mercury fuel, were perfect conductors. They had not heated. But the 11,000 tons of discharged mercury metal had been completely charged in just a bit better than eleven minutes. The pumps wouldn't force it through the charging apparatus any faster than that. Two weeks more had passed while the Estoratus and the Cepheid were fitted out with the new apparatus Buck had designed. They were almost ready to start now. McLaurin came down the corridor and stopped near Kendall. He too smiled at the Myron's attempt. They've got a long way to go, Buck. They're going a long way, clear back home, and we'll be right along. I don't think they can outdistance us. I still don't see why you couldn't use one of those uncertainty conditions, the first degree perhaps, and annihilate our inertia. You can't control uncertainty. By its essential character, it's beyond control. What's that fourth degree machine of yours? The material energy, if it isn't controlled and utilized uncertainty. It is utter and utterly uncontrolled uncertainty. The matter within that field breaks down to absolutely nothing. Within, no laws whatsoever apply. But fortunately, outside the old laws of physics apply. And we can gather and use the energy which is released outside, though nothing can be done inside. Why, think, man, if I can control the uncertainty, I could do anything at all, absolutely anything. It would be a world as unreasonable as a bad dream. Think how unreasonable those manifestations we first got were. But can't you get any control at all? Very little. Anyway, if I could get inertialist conditions at will, I'd be afraid of them. They'd make chemical reactions impossible in all probability, and life is chemical. Two atoms must come into more or less violent contact before a union takes place, and cannot, if they have neither momentum nor inertia. Anyway, why worry? I can't do it, because I can't control this thing. And we have the extra space drive. How does that darn thing work? Can't you drop the math and tell me about it? Kendall smiled. Not too readily. Remember at first, as to the driving system, that it works on the fabric of space. Space is, in the physical sense, a fabric woven of threads of line of force from everybody in the universe, made up of fields and forces. It is elastic and can transmit strains. 
but anything that can transmit strains can be strained against. With the tremendous field intensities available by the material engines, I can get such fields as will dig their toes into space and push. That's the drive itself. It is accelerationless, because it enfolds us and acts equally on every atom of us. By maintaining, in addition, a slight artificial gravity, thanks to the intensity of those material engine fields, we can be comfortable while we accelerate at tremendous rates. That is, I think, at least allied to the stranger's system. For the high-speed drive, I do, in fact, use the uncertainty. I can control it, in a certain sense, by determining its powers and the limits of uncertainty, whether first, second, third, or fourth degree. It advances in jumps, but on a finer plotting of the curve. You can see that each jump represents a vast series of smaller jumps. That is, there is class A, B, C, and D, and so forth. Uncertainty of the first degree. Now, class A, first degree, uncertainty, involves only the deepest, broadest principles. Only they break down. One of these is the law of the speed of light. I'm sure that isn't the system the strangers use. But I'm also sure there's no limit to the speed we can get. Doesn't that wreck your drive system? No, because gravity and the fields I use in driving are first-degree uncertainties of the higher classes. But at any rate, it will work. And I suspect you came to say you were ready to go. I did, McLaurin nodded. Still stick to your original plan? McLaurin nodded. I think it's the best. You follow those fellows back to their system in the Asteratus, and I'll stay here in the Cepheid to protect the system. They may need some time to get out of the place here. And remember, we ought to be as decent as they were. They didn't bother the transports leaving Jupiter when they came in, only attacked the warships. We're bound to do the same. But we'll have to keep a watch on them, nonetheless. So you go on ahead. They started down the corridor, and came presently to the huge locks where the Estoratus and the Cepheid were berthed. The superships lay cold and gray now, men swarming in and out with last-minute supplies, air, water, spare parts, bedding, and personal equipment. Douglas, Cole, and most of the laboratory staff would go with Kendall when he followed the strangers home. Devon and a few of the most advanced physicists would stay with McLaurin in case of need. An hour later, the Estoratus rose gently, soundlessly from her berth, and floated out of the open locked door. The Cepheid followed her in five seconds. Still under the great screen of the fort, the lashing, coruscating colors of the magnetic bombs, and the magnetic screen flashed and was iridescent. The Estoratus poked her great nose gently through the screen, and an instant later, her titanically powerful material engine effortly discharged a great magnetic bomb, sent with the combined power of five atomic-powered interstellar ships. The two ships separated now. The Cepheid under McLaurin flashed ahead with sudden, terrific acceleration toward Mars, whispering through space at a speed that made it undetectable, faster than light. The Estoratus journeyed out leisurely toward the fleet of forty-seven Myron ships. Gress Kakei saw the Estoratus, and as he watched the steady progress, felt sudden fear at his heart. The ship seemed so certain. 
At a distance of 30,000 miles, Kendall stopped. Magnetic bombs were washing his screen continuously now, seeking to exhaust the ship as all the great ships beyond poured their energy against it. A slow smile spread over Kendall's mouth as he heard the gentle hum of the barely working material engine. Carefully he aligned the nose UV beam of the Estoratus on the nearest Myron ships. Then he depressed the switch. There was no ion release before the force mirror now, just a jet of gas whirling into a half-inch field of uncertainty of the fourth degree. The matter vanished instantly in released energy so stupendous that the greatest previous UV beams had been harmless things by comparison. Material energy maintained the mirror forces. Material energy gave the power that was released, and only material energy could have stood up before it. Thirty thousand miles away, the Myron ship flamed instantaneously into inconceivable incandescence, vanishing almost in blue-violet light of terrific intensity. The ship reeled away, a half-molten wreck. The beam spotted two more ships before it winked out. Then Kendall began sending bombs. He moved up to within two thousand miles that his aim might be accurate. They were bombs of uncertainty of the third degree, the uncertainty of atomic law in bomb form. One hit the nose of the nearest ship, and a spear five feet in diameter glowed mistily blue for a moment. Then, very easily, the matter that formed the wall of the cruiser began to run and change, and presently there was only a hole and an expanding cloud of gas. Three more followed toward it, and the hole enlarged, and another hole appeared in a bulkhead behind. Kendall made a change. For the first time, there came the staccato bark of the material engine under strain, as it fashioned the terrific fields of uncertainty of the ultimate degree. Abruptly they leapt out, invisible till they entered a magnetic screen, then run over with opalescent light as the energy of the field was sucked into them and released. It struck the nose of a ship, a field no larger than an apple. A titanic gout of energy burst out that was soundless in space. The ship suddenly opened back, opened like the peel of a banana, till a little nub remained at the farther end, and the metal flaps dropped back across and behind it dejectedly. A second ship was struck, and it was struck in one side, so that it was shattered like a spent firecracker. Then the Myron fleet vanished in speed. Kendall followed them. I think he said with a grin, they tried to use their radio beam, but it spread too much to do anything at that distance. And they used their rotating magnetic field, which we couldn't feel, and their crumbler ray, too, of course. I wonder, are they headed for Jupiter? No, no, they've passed it. Faster than light, faster than energy could follow through space, or uncertainty bombs pursue, the Myrans were fleeing for home. They knew now that only in speed lay safety. Already they knew that a similar ship had appeared off Jupiter, and after wiping out Phobos and Mars stations with one bomb each, had cleared the Jovian satellites with equal terrible efficiency. In one of the fleeing ships was a broken, tired old man and his staff. Gresquiquet looked back at the blank, distorted space behind them, at the swiftly dwindling sun, and spoke. 
I was at fault, my friends. Jarth has spoken. They are the stronger and the wiser race. Farth Skalt has shown you they use space fields of intensity 100. That means the energy of the ultimate destruction. Jarth used us as his instrument of testing, only to drive and stimulate that race. I do not nay. There is no doubt now, for look. Plainly visible, rapidly overtaking them, the Estoratus appeared sharp and luminous on the jet of distorted space. We cannot escape, my friends. Shall we return to store or remain in space lost? Let us deflect our course. At least he may not know our destination. The interstellar ship turned very slightly in her course. Plainly they saw the Estoratus flash on in a straight line, headed for a distant red-glowing Myra. Greshkake watched and shrugged. Silently, he put the ship back on its course at its utmost speed. Parallel with them, near to them, the Estoratus flashed on. Day after day, the two hurtled through space faster than light. Gradually, Myra brightened and at last became a disk. Greshkake slowed his ship and Kendall, watching, slowed to match his speed. Five billion miles from Shtor, they had reached normal space speeds. Viciously, the Myron fleet attacked the lone ship from Earth. Their rays, their bombs, their every weapon was flaming. Great interstellar ships flashed suddenly into speeds greater than that of light, seeking to ram and destroy the smaller ship. The Estoratus flashed an equal or greater speed and eluded them. Kendall had determined now which was the leader's ship. Greshkake watched dully as his ships attempted to destroy the single small ship. He sighed in resignation and turned to walk back to the chapel aboard the ship. One last prayer to Jarth. Greshkake stopped abruptly. The great ship was lurching strangely. Men shouted sudden, frightened cries. The clanking and thud of relays sounded, the shrill of alarms. Then the alarm stopped, and suddenly the whole great ship vibrated to an infinitely deep voice speaking in perfect Sithorian. The voice remarked solemnly in great vibrant tones that they would certainly receive news presently from the expeditions. It went on for some seconds to discuss conditions as reported in the new system. Then it stopped abruptly. An electric motor just above Greth Kakei's head suddenly hummed into action without reason or power connection. Almost simultaneously, he heard the shouts of startled men as the great locked doors began to open in the space of their own accord. Bulkhead doors slipped shut as the roar of escaping air echoed in the ship. Then it was all over. Greshkake ran to the control room. The Myrans there looked up at him with drawn faces. The instruments, Greshkake, the instruments, the instruments read impossible things. The motors worked without reason. The fields fluctuated, the atomic engines stopped, and the magnetic shield broke down, and gripped part of the ship instead, reported the bewildered pilot. I do not know some strange weapon of, began the old scientist. Something luminous and huge twisted suddenly through space toward them, a bomb of uncertainty of the first degree. It wrapped the ship silently, and again strange things happened. Abruptly, the ship started whirling violently, yet without centrifugal force. 
The heavens wheeled crazily and turned about three axes simultaneously. There was no gyroscopic effect to hold them. Gradually the thing died out. Then a great field seemed to catch the ship and hurl it away from its companions. Abruptly, the pilot applied all his power to pull free. In vain. Gresh Kakei shook his head slowly and raised the pilot's hands from the board. Let them do as they will. I think they mean us no real harm. Thwart Krop, they can, we know, destroy us in an instant. Perhaps he wants us to go somewhere with him. Gresh Kakei smiled sadly, and anyway, we can do nothing. For nearly a billion miles, the great ship was hurled through space at tremendous normal space velocity. Then abruptly it was halted, without a sign of strain or hurt. The great twenty-foot UV beam on the nose of the Asteratus broke into a glowing, gentle red light. It flashed twice. There was a pause. Then it flashed four times, a long wait, then three times, a pause, and nine times, a wait, four times, a pause, sixteen times. Then it stopped. A slow smile of ineffable joy spread over Gretzkeke's face. Jarth be praised. He can destroy, but he does not wish to. Ah, Thartkrault, turn your spotlight toward him and flash it twenty-five times, for he is trying to start communications with us. Jarth is wise beyond all understanding. They were the weaker race, and they are the stronger. But also they are the better, for they could destroy, and they do not, but seek only to communicate. End of chapter 12